Nick, when you are first starting a project, uh, somebody comes to you for a sculpture and you are trying, you know, say they say, oh, we've got an atrium. It's a large building. Uh, it's got 70 foot high by uh, 200 by 200 space. And we need a big sculpture. And that's the information that they give you. They also will say this when you ask them, well, what kind of thing do you want? And they'll say, uh, we don't really know what we want, but we know it when we'll, or we'll, we'll know it when we see it. What, how do you start? How do you start with a project? What do you, what's the first thing that you do? What do you, uh, what gets, what okay. gets that ball rolling? Well, so we always go and and study the site and the neighborhood and the environment, and we never make anything in the, of of the nature you're describing uh, without knowing where it's going to go and understanding that, and then okay, and then take the ideas that we want to transmit and see how they can best uh, work in that environment. So, you know you. <laughs> Stuff that has to live in the real world and, and sculptures like that. It's not like a painting where it's inside the magic, you know, gate of a frame and can be anything it wants to be. A sculpture has to deal with the real world. It has it, it has to be strong enough to stand up to the, the other objects in its environment. And it has to make sense in their context of where you put it. Or at least if it doesn't make sense, it has to not make sense in a useful way. <laughs> right. Okay. So, so, so it. It, so it's always all site, site. site specific. Yeah. yeah right. Okay. My, uh, now my dad's a landscape architect and, um, and he's done things like picnic shelters um, and other things like that. Um, and he's all about the site. And not only is he about the site dictating the product, uh, you know, dictating the form, but he's also about the location within that site yep. dictating um, dictating the form. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I've, I I follow you on that. Now, how how much work do you do? I should know this because I've known you for for a while now. Uh, how much work do you do that is more small mobile stuff where you don't have that information before? Or it's something that could move from garden to garden as people move, or it can be moved from, you know, from one house to the next. Well, so oh, more, you... more and more, we're we're trying to do smaller work like that when we get a chance. Uh -huh. But we started out making everything like that. Everything was on spec. We didn't have clients, so it's going in a gallery uh -huh. or going in a show. Right. And the problem with that is we'd put work in a gallery. And people would see it and they'd say, yeah, we want that, but we want a little different to go with this and that. And right. So we people were basically to match the carpet. Right. Yeah. They were wanting a different version of what they saw. And that's fine. We got a lot of small commissions that way, but it was very hard. It's like it's like throwing a dart with a blindfold on. You know, you yeah. don't you don't know where the target is. So it you end up with a bunch of stuff that gets you jobs, but you don't necessarily sell. So it's it's a it's harder to do that. Okay, so this is, um, to a certain extent, this is uh, part of my definition of um, the difference between design and art um, in that, and I'm not saying that your stuff's not art, just uh, bear with me on this, um, The is the concept that a designer 
has to be an artist for a client. Um, in other words, uh, if you're an artist and uh, you're doing uh, a work in reaction to uh, the 1905 earthquake in San Francisco, um, you might uh, do a little sculpture of, of crumbling bricks or a screaming horse. Um, yeah, Picasso's <laughs> just rolled over in his grave, right? Uh, you know, something along those lines um, uh, to express it for yourself. The problem is that as a designer, you have to express it for your client and that's kind of what you're talking about right yeah about but i don't i think that you're kind of working in, in a direction that i find is full of arbitrary distinctions that in the mm -hmm. end don't don't really mean much so you know even when you're even if you're supposedly you know this pure artist off in your ivory tower you're your own client okay it, it really isn't that different i think those distinctions make sense if you're talking about practical you know procedures but in terms of defining one thing being design and another thing thing being art, I think they they fall uh, apart pretty quick. Oh, OK, I, uh, I, I, I personally like that definition, but I also understand your objection to it. Um, right. So so, Ethan, if uh, let, let's I'm, I'm turning the tables a little bit with the same question. If you are designing. OK, so the Bronco pan that you um have been developing for the last six months was for a client right it was for a specific project what was your approach um once you got that request well so it was um this is kind of an interesting question i like that um nick's sort of concise way of putting it is like an artist is that is a designer who has himself as a client. Um, yeah. <laughs> I didn't you right. know, really have yeah. a client. I have a, a very good friend. We grew up together who, um, you know, called me about what his panoramic options are. And I decided to sort of go for it. It's not like he, you know, paid me or commissioned me, but, um, as soon as you asked this question, I was thinking that some of my most successful cameras are, based on requests from others, those two being uh, the homunculus being a request from Nick and mm -hmm. uh, like the Bronco pan being more or less a request from my buddy, Eric. Um, you know, like if there's somebody who asks me to do something, um, then it's like almost an easier job, right? It's like, does, does the product fit the, the bill? Right. Um, right. If or meet just, the brief as uh, yeah, as yeah, A exactly. talks about all the time. Yeah. Um, for me, <laughs> I guess I have you know my own personal brief things that I want you know my next camera or uh, brewery temperature controller or whatever to do. <laughs> uh, but yeah, deciding which ones. I mean, even amongst uh, sort of clients and doing doing uh, design work for others. It's, it's always hard figuring out, you know, where where to spend my time, what yeah. things to do. Well, there's How always going to there's always going to be a little back and forth that, you know, even with the ideal client or even if you're just working for yourself, there's going to be, you know, some struggle back and forth about what's the right solution, because there's, of course, going to be an infinite number of good solutions and you just have to try and pick one, you know. Right. Some people we, are just like married to the idea of left handed grips. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. 
Sure. Yes. And, and, <laughs> and other other people want uh, their cameras to, you know, only only serve one purpose and, and not be adaptable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So uh, one of the things that I always do when I'm approached with this same situation, uh, no matter the media, is um, I, I'm going to do it generically, uh, generically call it research. I mean, uh, Nick, what you were talking about with going out into the community uh, into the the site and seeing the site and, and, and the community there and yeah and, and and talk to the people and find out how they use right. the site and what they think yeah. of it and all that sort of thing yeah yeah um yeah there's a um there's a house uh near where I live uh that's in an old historic district and it was uh uh in historic site uh, historic house I think it was a 1920s house that they gutted and took the peaked roof off and put a flat roof on it and essentially made a California modern house in the middle of what would be a 20s um, neighborhood. And these people obviously have always wanted that mid-century modern California modern house. And it's just, it is such a sore thumb. And it would look so good in a mid-century modern neighborhood, you right. know, um, and and it looks so horrible where it is just simply because, I mean, it, it serves its purpose of standing out. If you want, you know, just go look for the mid-century modern house. But if if your purpose is to be a member of a community and a neighborhood and an environment and all that type of stuff. Right. It's uh, like an, it's like the nude, the nudist at a for, formal dinner. You know, it just it just. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> hey, on that note, let's start the homemade camera podcast. Ethan's been working on a beautiful camera that is a, a do-it-yourself answer to, you know, an unaffordable and exciting camera, the X-Pan. And I've been getting by with an RB67 back conversion, so I can I can take 15 shots in that uh, at that aspect ratio um, with a wide range of lenses on several different cameras. So it's it's great, but it does have the awkward. Uh, you know, detail that I have to rewind it in a dark bag and or else carry multiple film holders into the field. And so far, that's been fine for me. But uh, someday it would be nice to have a camera like the Bronco Pan where you've got uh, it's just you operate it like a normal camera. You can just keep loading and rewinding the film. And so I guess the topic I'm interested in is this thing of finding, you know, cameras that I can't afford. And there are more and more of those I'm becoming aware of, and I can afford them less and less. <laughs> and so <laughs> figuring out ways to make them is stronger and stronger uh, part of what I'm thinking about when I, when I make cameras. And so I'm kind of curious about any uh, similar ideas. I know that uh, Graham is also working on a really nice panoramic camera. Um, panoramas seem to be like catching fire these days, and it makes right. sense to me. It's uh, it's it's actually not just something a little different, but it's a very compelling format in a lot of re a lot of ways. I really uh, I like to keep my uh, 
focal lengths in the normal range if possible, but I love wide and expansive and inclusive uh, shots. And the only way to do it is just to keep making your format wider and bigger and, and in order to get more in the, in the frame without, uh, without uh, having a, a lot of perspective distortion from you know, using wide lenses. Uh, you know, uh, okay, so uh, I think I talked a little bit about it last episode with Brendan Berry. And thank you, Brendan Berry. Just want to say that because uh, thanks for coming on the show. Um, I have started um, seeing, yeah, okay, so my camera is a 6x12, which means it is a 2 to 1 panoramic aspect ratio. And I've been kind of seeing the way that I can make um, uh, a diptych within a single frame. So the idea is that I'll have one subject on the right and another subject on the left. And they, you know, certainly can be in different planes. Um, you know, uh, e even if, uh, um, you know, say a close subject is in focus and the far subject is in, uh, is is blurry, then I, I'm I'm working on this this kind of two to one um, figure, this this two to one kind of look to the to the um, to the pictures. And um, I, I, I've, I'm really liking that, but I'm also I've been thinking about it enough at this point and we're talking thinking about it for, I don't know, three, four weeks. Uh, I'm thinking about it enough at this point where I'm kind of like, oh, I don't have to do this every time, you know, because it's so dominant in my brain when I'm taking the pictures. So uh, how do you guys how do you guys approach that panoramic uh, image? Because, yeah, you guys are shooting on panoramic as well. So I have a, a habit, for better or worse, of of usually composing pretty fast and instinctively and then later realizing I could have done something better or more interesting. So I need to work mm -hmm. on that. But but there is there is something there's just something about seeing certain arrangements. And they, there are, of course, the cliches about diagonals and, you know, thirds and all the different ways people arrange things. But there's something that I find is very specific in certain moments that isn't necessarily about all those rules of composition. And that's what I'm looking for. And I think for me, Panorama helps with that because it's unfamiliar and you you have to sort of rethink your habits uh, when you're composing. And you're talking about one way to think of it. It's almost like a instant diptych that you've got that double frame, essentially. With with an X-Pan, it's, it's more than double. Um, but it, it feels like you're taking two pictures at once. And they have to connect somehow uh, or not. Yeah. You know, and that... That it's a different, it's just a different level. Uh, but I really, yeah. that really appeals to me because I like to see a fair amount going on. I know simple is often stronger, but I still want to see. So I've gotten really interested in the idea that uh, that interactions are what I'm interested in, in yeah. you know, finding. And it's just often requires that you get more in the frame to show an interaction. You've got, you know part A and part B, and they need to be right. somewhere in the frame and you don't want them to be tiny and far away. So, so I, I find it's very good at sort of encouraging me to take a kind of picture that interests me right now. Um, so yeah. I guess, you know, that's what, helpful. One of the things 
Um, one of the things that uh, I was talking about with maybe even making it, uh, it's a little bit too much into my brain is you just said it part A and part B what's missing there is part C and D and E and F. Right. Um, and I'm just kind of going for that part A and part B. And I think I need to make it more complex. Um, so you mean e- your compositions? Ethan, I'm, yeah, I'm not exactly sure composition. what you were talking about. Yeah. He's talking about the, the way you can sort of have, you know, if you were going to take a environmental portrait of one person with a normal camera, you can get two environmental portraits into one frame <laughs> with the pa- with the panoramic right. you, you know near you can use near far and all these things to kind of raise right. the stakes but you you basically you've got you're getting two pictures for the you know in one mm-hmm. and that's right and, and that's a very different way to compose uh but and quite always, literally I, it's one picture for the price of two well yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 it's that's the it. economic viewpoint but <laughs> we're not talking about yeah. that this uh ethan Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, go Nick. Oh, that's all right. I, I just was going to say that this is only one way to, to use that um, framing. But I also am kind of fed up with two to three, um, the standard, you know, yeah. full, full frame. Uh, it it's not it's it's like not wide enough and not square enough. It's like this sort of for me anyway, this annoying in between. And uh, I love a lot of the cameras and I use I'm t- so used to that format maybe that's part of the problem uh i like to get away from it yeah i ethan how do you approach that idea of um of of what you what you can do with a panorama that you can't do with a a standard square or a standard uh you know 35 millimeter rectangle or even a four by five rectangle you know maybe this is because I haven't spent enough time thinking about art and philosophy and like thinking deep about uh, myself and my motivations and goals in terms uh-huh. of art. But I don't really see the difference. You know, like obviously okay. <laughs> some, some things are a little easier to fit into a panoramic frame and some are easier to fit into a square frame. You know, uh, one, I'm looking whatever I'm shooting for something interesting going on. And then two, you know, like how does it how does it fit into whatever frame I've got? Um, and like I've I don't know I've found um, when there's a lot going on in sort of like a wide space, like walking down the street in New York, uh, great. Um, you know, for a portrait, it's not always that great. Uh, but yeah, I don't uh, I don't really see much difference. I've been well, really digging the format. So I think what you're saying makes sense, but I think it depends on where you start. So. There's two ways to work. One is you start with a format, you've got a viewfinder, and you go out and you look for things that fit in it, you know. Mm-hmm. But the other way to think about making an image is that you, if if you look at any one scene, in even a dynamic scene that's going to change from second to second, if you look at it, there you might see something in that scene that really demands a certain format, and then you have to pick the format and you know of course you could just shoot giant images and crop it later um but they're really different ways to approach a problem you know one is i want this image so i'm going to therefore pick a format go out and work until i get those things assembled into this format that's where you're pre-visualizing that's kind of the ansel adams approach i i feel like Mm i do a lot of (laughs) re-visualizing but i do i usually don't shoot that way i usually wander around 
taking pot shots and then whatever format is in my hands is what I'm stuck with. So that in that case, you're waving the camera around until you well, but, find find the right composition. I, so they're very different approaches. I bet you do this, which is like and, and I've I noticed that certainly because I've been shooting a bunch with the Bronco pan on vacation is like, um, you know, I would uh, make a mod, shoot a roll of film, develop it, whatever. But then, you know, I had this two month period where I was traveling and I just used that one. Uh, prototype over and over and over and then you know also just taking pot shots like nick said but then you develop them you see which things you like and what you like about them and then the next time you're out you're always looking for those things so i'm you know in the process of developing and scanning the next sort of couple of month batch and i think when i go out shooting now you know the things that really pleased me were uh sort of things that reminded me of old film stills. I think, you know, the format obviously affects that, but also the types of things I like to shoot. And, uh, you know, I'm always looking for what I consider to be like my good pictures that I've shot the month before. I'm looking to shoot them again. Not exactly the same thing, but like I'm looking for something that reminds me of that thing that worked, uh, whether it's framing or, or, you know, and that's and that's basically how the pot shots evolve into pre-visualized images. Mm-hmm. And they're in real life is often a hybrid, especially if you like to shoot, you know, spontaneous stuff. So, yeah. of course, but I think that for me, I feel the most productive when I pick a format that is going to be right for what I'm out hunting for, even if I don't, you know, completely pre-set up a shot and you know have lighting and actors and all that. There, you still eventually you, you've got something you're looking for one way or the other. And I think that to me, that feels more, more productive um, than the kind of gambler's instinct to just go <laughs> out and wave the camera around. You know, I mean, they both both are worth doing. But when you start, when you start knowing, OK, this is what I'm looking for. I think that's an advantage. And yeah. uh, that's the way I like to use special formats, I guess. Part of uh, part of what I wanted to discuss about this is I wanted to get uh, um, we have the ability to make any format we want. Right. We can uh, take paper and make a, uh, you know, a, a seven by uh, 12 um, camera. Right. A camera that shoots a seven by 12 paper negative. Mm-hmm. Now, why do you want seven by 12? What is it about seven by 12? Um, you know, uh, what drives you to that? And it it goes back, uh, you know, one of the things in our community, in the film photography community, there's kind of a uh, there's kind of a, a a quit talking about gear vibe and start talking about the art vibe. And, you know, part of the deal is <laughs> We're about gear by definition in the title, right? Um, so I, I'm thinking about those. Uh, you hear it a lot on the podcasts that that really get uh, the fine artists as opposed to the builders on, and you'll you'll hear, well, I don't know what the lens is that I have on that camera. I only have <laughs> right. one lens, and and. And I have the one camera and I make that one camera and that one lens work. Okay. So what we're, uh, and so what they're doing is they're taking that frame, whatever the, whatever the parameters are, that frame, that lens, you know, 
it could be an f8 lens which means that their depth of field is going to be lesser than a, a 4.5 lens on a large format you know uh situation or it could be you know uh, they're working within the limitations of the equipment they happen to have and we're in the point of view of well we can modify that equipment and change what you have yeah. um y- you know and and it's um and it's part of the part of the debate that I think is is very interesting. It's part part of the process that I think is very interesting. And so that was the reason why I asked about what is it about the rectangular frame? Um, you know, like okay, on uh, on a one twenty roll, the common sizes are six four five, six by six, six by seven, six by eight, six by nine. 6 by 12, 6 by 18, or 6 by 17. Um, you know, you don't hear 6 by 23. You don't hear 6 by 15 uh, because there are certain constraints within the numbering system on the backing paper. You know, it's got to be a, a multiple of one of those um you know, and one of you, those. If, yeah, and if you've this, if you if you've got a really fine tuned sense of it, though, you can always shoot to crop and and get all those. Um, yeah, right, right, absolutely. Um, but but shooting to well, shooting to crop, I think actually is a very interesting way to think about it because if you shoot to crop, then it doesn't matter what format you are shooting. And sure, so, except that if you're way out of line, you're going to waste a lot of you know material and and information. But it doesn't matter. But it doesn't matter because you are um, if you're shooting to crop, you're seeing, you know, if you're shooting sheet film, say four by five sheet film and you're shooting to crop, then you can make any shape. Yeah. Uh, uh, And, you know, as long as you can get it to whatever medium uh, that you want for display. Right. Then you can shoot any shape. But we're talking about the shape of the uh of the frame being part of the process i to me to me it's extremely important so when i'm walking around with a normal camera there are so many times that i'll see what could be a really good shot and i'll frame it and i'll think it doesn't matter where i stand this is not going to work with this format and i just if it's a small piece of film i don't even take the picture because you know it's not going to work for me i i find format really really a big strong part of what i'm doing and i yeah the only way i could can use the wrong format is if there's enough room to crop and, and i'll be happy with that result yeah. right right so, yeah, so and that's big, where yeah, yeah that that's where those you know uh sony cameras um with the 40 what is it 42 megapixel sensor right. are valuable um in that you can crop pretty much anything out of it um as long as you're well, glass- yeah and my Fuji has a bunch of aspect ratios in it, so yeah. you can actually see the see right. what you're gonna get. And what's nice about it is when you shoot raw, you get the full image. So yeah. y- if you want to, you know, fudge the crop later, you still can. So you can see yeah. what you can see what you're gonna get. And I, to me, that's really valuable. I, I really care about the shape of the frame. Yeah, yeah. As do I. As do I. Um, I. What, uh, Ethan, let's uh, bring you back in here. Um, <laughs> and uh, how much, uh, okay, so the Bronco Pan was a request for a very specific format. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, is it? Do you think um, that it is modifiable to other sizes? Easy, easily modified. I mean, like, can you get? Uh, uh, I'm not suggesting that you would have the Bronco Pan MF, um, although that would be a great name for it, right? Multi format. Oh, so it's just like, could <laughs> yeah. you like change a cogwheel and get it to do uh, two to yeah. one, a two to one ratio on 35 millimeter film? Right. Um, so I could, in a second, make a different uh, film gate that does two to one. It would take right. me a couple of weeks at least to change all of the cogwheels and the mounting positions and their radii such uh-huh. that um, you get tighter frame spacing and get more pictures, right? So if, if you want to shoot the right. same number of pictures and just drop down, easy. Um, I've even thought about, like, so the X-Pan is, I don't know, 62 or 64 millimeters long, and yeah. my camera is 58 millimeters long, which I prefer because it's cinema anamorphic standard, which is like all of the movies we grew up watching. But, right. you know, yeah, to make it a little bit longer becomes... Yeah, it's it's 24 by 65. Um, yeah, which is which is the X Pan is a uh, twenty four by sixty five. I think that's what uh, my RB sixty seven back is too, and I yeah. get fifteen yeah. frames on a roll. How many do you get with yours? Uh, seventeen to twenty, but I'm yeah both loading, so just, right. I would say but, seventeen or eighteen on a commercial. So really, with for what we're asking, you might as well shoot to crop. You might as well just use a viewfinder that shows you the two to one aspect ratio knowing you're going to cut a little bit off you you're only you know you're only losing uh a couple of frames or whatever so who cares like it you know redesigning your camera so that you yeah. get an extra shot or whatever out of the roll it doesn't seem worth it yeah yeah i mean i've, I've already had like at least five requests do you think you could add this to the bronco pen do you think you could do that and i just think like yeah i could do all of those but already the bronco pan even if it succeeds, we'll pay about a third of the time it's worth, mm-hmm. and it's probably not going to succeed. And so, me spending another, you know, a couple of months making people custom shit. Yeah. Like you know, people have the idea that that uh, you know a one-off costs the same as something that you manufacture over and over. But you know, people very rarely have respect for the time. You know, the money value. Yeah. Of time. So, so this kind of brings okay. me around to one of the things that I want to see, which is the completely gearless version where you just, and it would have to, at this point, I guess it would be, it would have to be one. I mean, so everyone always says you could put 35 millimeter on backing paper. And I guess that's a good solution. What I'm saying is I'd like to see a 120 version that just uses a knob wind and has some incremental way that you can basically frame however you want. And Mm -hmm. that really ultra simple version, kind of like a, you know, a, Graflock Holgevac kind of thing, you know, mm-hmm. would would be great for when you really need that odd format and you you know you feel like trying this other thing. And I guess and I, and I also really like the fact that these cameras are using 35 millimeter film because there's so many more emulsions and you've got a lot of length in the roll. Um, you can it's you can bulk load 35 millimeters so you can create you know efficient custom lengths of film that are going to fit on a, say on a 120 uh, backing paper or something like oh. that. So, so that really simple knob wind back um, for experimental purposes or for mm-hmm. when you want something that is odd, 
I think would be super uh, useful to have. I agree. I've been thinking about these things. <laughs> yeah. So, Ethan, you have the Bronco Pan up on Kickstarter right now. And um, on my desk. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Um, and with this idea of not only um, getting the camera to a point where it can be produced, in this case, produced more wide, um, but uh, that you know you can release it and and get it going in a reasonable way, um, but it is also kind of a test of a new business model. Um, so you want to talk about how that's going and and um, and what your thoughts are on that? As we're what 15 days still to go. We're halfway through. Uh, 19 right? days, but 19 by the time this comes four. out, uh, five days. <laughs> Five days. Uh, oh, okay. So they'll still have time. Uh, everybody will still have time. So let's make sure. Oh, that yeah. Go to ch- Kickstarter now. <laughs> Very go important. Go to Kickstarter now. Search uh, Camperdactyl. And just set it and forget it. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's it's going medium. So the idea is, uh, and a lot of people really don't get this. Uh, as I've been promoting it more and more on the internet, I get these sorts of uh, comments and, and messages often from well-meaning people who don't understand sort of the economics of mass production. Um, so this camera takes me, let's say, eight hours to assemble, you know, trim all the parts, fit everything up, calibrate it, um, and, you know, 60 or 70 hours to print. And, and that would make it wildly expensive. And certainly some people would pay a thousand bucks for a camera that's a plastic camera that I think is beautiful and most people think is weird looking. Um, But, you know, business-wise, it doesn't really help me if, I mean, I'd take the thousand bucks, but it doesn't help me if five people own my camera, right? Like, it, I I need to be a little bit more famous to be able to sell things like camera grips and, you know, inexpensive things. Um, And also, like, just personal ego wise, I would like to see thousands of people using my designs around the world. It's, it's really nice. It's like my legacy, you know? Um, but I, I think a lot of people, right? So it's, it's a niche community who's shooting film to begin with an even smaller niche that's shooting panoramic or cinema, uh, cinema style, uh, film. And then, like, what is the overlap with the niche community of 3D printers? It's very small. And so a lot of people have rightfully sort of said, hey, you know, I would gladly pay much more to just buy a camera. I don't want to get into 3D printing, which, you know, I totally get. Um, However, I think when people say I would pay more for a camera, they don't mean I would pay a thousand bucks for your plastic camera. A lot of these people are like, oh, I get the files for one dollar. I would pay a hundred bucks for a set of parts or, or a camera. And they just miss that I, I can't do eight hours worth of work, 60 hours worth of printing, and put $40 worth of material into something that I sell for $40, right? Um, and that, that's sort of like the most basic miss of the economics of the thing. The sort of helpful suggestion that people have given that's totally not helpful and, and misses this thing is a lot of people say, like, why don't you just take the Kickstarter money and use it towards... Um, you know, mass manufacturing in China or, or injection molding here or whatever. Um, and I think that misses that, like, 
the things that I am into are very niche. They're not a good business to get into. There's not that many people who are interested in it, right? I mean, right. this audience, right, the, the people who listen to our show are exactly the people who are into it, maybe, right? Um, yeah. But all dozen of them. General, right? <laughs> um, it's uh, it's not something that's gonna. I'm not gonna sell as many of these as Nikon is gonna sell the Z, Z50 or whatever. Um, and right. So, so right. The, so there's the cost you, of injection molding is you know for this camera there's enough pieces it would probably be fifty to hundred grand in just mold setup costs. And um, that's assuming it all went well. Um, right. Months <laughs> of back and forth. Uh, it could it could go closer to 200 grand if there's a lot of milling errors or expansion miscalculations for the thermoplastics and and so like I, I like I I can't throw a hundred grand at making something that I think you know if I made this camera in a way that I could sell the kit for let's say 150 bucks I still think I would sell like maybe a thousand of them maybe. Right. Yeah. And, and at which point it's just not profitable. It eats my ear, let alone like just the cost of making the mold, I'm not talking about the six months of going back and forth, flying to China or, or paying extra to have it done here in Albuquerque. Uh, there's actually a bunch of good injection molders here, but um, it's, it like, it just doesn't make sense as a mass market product. Um, I don't think the market is there and I can't, I'm, you know, like if I'm super successful, a thousand people will build this camera. Um, but if a thousand people bought this camera, I would still need to charge a thousand bucks, even if it was injection molded, to cover my time to deal with just the injection molding, not right. Like, um, well, think it. about so, what think about what Hamish is going through with the Pixelator, and yeah, right. this and, and, is a considerably more complicated machine. Yeah, yeah, and it's you know, and I, I don't want to really complain right i think right this camera is something that would work really well for those very niche people who are into 3d printing and this style of camera however um i think people donating a buck or 10 bucks or whatever just so that it's out in the world in the future might become more viable as uh, you know places like shapeways uh, cater less towards one-time prototyping for designers and manufacturers and more towards uh, final goods. And what that means is, like, if you were to throw uh, all of my files up on Shapeways, you're going to pay, like, a thousand bucks just for the parts. Um, whereas... You know, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm I'm thinking that where this go is going is you need to figure out the technology has to get to the point where you can make your injection molds with your 3D printer. Oh, you you can, and it's, but there's, we'll leave injection molding and 3D printing and injection molding for another show. We could we could go way down into like uh, two part resins and thermoplastics and all of that. But um, I mean, the point is the camera was not designed to be injection molded, right? I could split it up into more pieces with more drafts, angles, and, uh, you know, the ability to pop out of a mold, sure. But, you know, this was specifically designed to be super sturdy and solid and work off of a 3D printer, right? And there's a lot of shapes there that you just couldn't get in an mm -hmm. injection molder, um, which isn't to say I couldn't design one for an injection molder that would work. But, again, we're talking, you know, like I'm trying to raise 12 grand of these design files like 
at my normal rate, like for uh, electromechanical consulting things, right? I've burned fifty thousand dollars worth of time here. Um, you know, I'm I'm willing to take much less for time building cameras because it's what I love. But um, yeah, I'm I'm not going to put another fifty grand worth of time into injection molding designs. But the, the, my whole point is, Shapeways might one day, or some other three D print farm, uh, come down a lot in prices or 3d printers might become much more um uh, reliable and easy to use and sort of like tinker proof uh, much like a bubble jet printer is these days and so right or know, laser, la laser cutting flat goods are all some of the simpler processes like that sure but i mean the point is even if these files are out there in the world and you don't have a or a 3d printer um in five years, it might be, and this is, you know, I don't want to make promises that I have no intention on working on, but like, um, I think just general trend, you will be able to send the files out to a print farm and get them back, you know, relatively inexpensively at some point in the future. Um, and so I think that's like a little bit of a, a benefit that, that some people might get from it, even if they don't intend to 3d print it right now or ever own sure. a 3d printer. But. Sure. Anyway, I, so, I don't know. Yeah. Sorry. Well, it's just uh, like, no. it's like oh, this with any, any process. So, you know, I can, I can make jigs that would allow me to crank out the same shape over and over again, but nothing I make looks like that. Like I don't want the same shape over and over again. So right. there's no incentive for me to do that, even though it would drastically speed up production for some things. Uh, since those aren't things I want to make, it doesn't matter, you know? <laughs> And I think that's a little bit the conundrum you get into with any of these. Like we could probably figure out a hybrid system where some parts are cut and some parts are 3D print and, you know, maybe one or two key things are injection molded. I mean, maybe designing more universal systems where you could, you know, use the same parts in a lot of different cameras. I mean, that's what that's what camera companies do. Right. Mm -hmm. Those Nikons have looked the same for a really long time. But on the other uh, hand, that's all we need. Uh, we just need a 3D printed Cosina out there. There you go. Um, <laughs> you know. Well, there's um, something. There is something to that. But what I guess I'm saying is that's only true if that's what you're interested in. And I understand really Ethan's yeah. interested in making cameras which are very specifically designed for one thing, and it doesn't lend itself to that kind of universal approach. Right. And so it's 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 the same thing in my work. I, I don't. If I wanted to mass produce things, I'd have a completely different shop, and you know, it would be uh, it would be a completely different product. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that I uh, it, it, my approach to this is, you know, um, Ethan, for a, a large part of this uh, of what you're talking about with this is that this is the way you make money, um, yeah. and. And you need to make money on this. Uh, I'm in a, a little bit different boat in that, yeah, I want to make money off my designs, um, but I also have a full-time job and that's where my energy is going to be full-time, right? Um, and so uh, so I, one of the, as I was developing the 612 um, and uh, I was posting pictures of the early designs on Instagram, um, you know, really my whole brain was at the point of, you know, this is a one-off. This is a one-off. Uh, I'm making it for me. I'm 
you know, uh, I'm never going to make these and um, and sell them because I don't have the time or the inclination to do that. Right. Sure. Um, and and and, you know, Ethan, you and I talked about this quite a bit. Um, and but but my idea was it was, you know, all I'm doing is, you know, I'm making something for me. Great. Um, and, and I'm, I'm happy with the result and, um, I don't really see any way to sell this unless this model works, unless the Ethan model works. I mean, there, there are other things out there that we could try. Like this is my first attempt and it's looking like, um, I don't, I don't know that it is going to succeed. It's certainly giving me a signal that if you know, pricing this thing at a third or a fourth of what it actually would take to be profitable is questionable whether I will even meet that. You know, it's really going to change what I do in the future, you know, which is disappointing for me because it means less making complicated things and teaching people how to build them and more making simple things that I can, you know, make money on the production of. Um, Right. But but I, I don't think that this is, so one, it's, an indication to me that the product is too niche. There's a dude selling a calendar on Kickstarter, which is just a big wall poster. It's a piece of paper and he's crushing me right now. Like everybody's buying this thing. It's super popular. You know, it's like, I, I thought, Oh, I should have spent a day making a wall calendar uh, instead of six <laughs> yeah. months. You know, like I can, I can make that poster. I could probably even convince you, Graham, to design it for me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. But, and and so it's it's a signal to me that maybe this is not a good strategy. I, I thought like if it worked it would be great, but um, in fact there's just you know and there's lots of people giving me a hundred bucks on Kickstarter, which is amazing for a set yeah. of files, right? But um, there's not that many lots of people, <laughs> you know. And, right. And maybe it's a signal to me that I've picked a market that's too niche that I'm particularly yeah. interested in, which is you know story of my life. But um, yeah. I don't think it's the be all and end all of trying to figure out an economic model that would work for this, or even, you know, maybe this sort of model would work in a year or two's time when 3D printing is cheaper, more reliable, and more available. And right. although I think it is very now, um, and however, there might be more however, demand for cameras, and the prices of, you know, already existing cameras might go up. And so uh, I don't know that. You know, we couldn't do this in a in a different way, or do it in the same way oh. at a different time. Yeah. Okay. I know. I'm with you on that. Uh, I'm with you on the specifics. That there are many ways to do the specifics, and I actually have the way of uh, of you know not going through Kickstarter, just going through Etsy and doing it direct. Um, but the whole point of uh, offloading the production on the buyer yeah. is uh, that's the key that's the key factor um that is that has to succeed if anybody's gonna uh, seriously and i'm not joking about this it has to succeed if anybody's gonna get a six by twelve uh yeah. from me right okay because there's no way i can't do the production i can't do the production here's i've done the math i mean I you could just, but you'd have to charge you know, six, no. 700 bucks for that gamma body with, with, well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, with, and at that price, I want fine Corinthian leather. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah well, exactly. Because <laughs> the chorus that, of the people, 
<laughs> yeah, that's that's easy. Um, uh, Ricardo Montalban. Um, but the 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 um, uh, I I have really done the math on this, and right now, without expanding my printer base, I can do maybe twelve of these a year. Yeah, you know, one a month, and so. Um, and, and I want to point out that then stops me from doing any R and D. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes, exactly. I can, do no, I can do nothing else. Um, I mean, I can actually at, at one a month, I can, um, I can have maybe a week of R and D in there. So, okay. uh, yeah. So when we, when we finish this call, I've got about six hours of camera building. I, got, I think I'll put out four or five OGs and homunculuses today. Uh-huh. And then I'm still six cameras behind. And like, there's, I, <laughs> I'm not going to touch a prototype for another two or three weeks. You know, it's like, right. Uh, yeah. So there is, right. so, so I want to just interject that there is another way to attack this. And it's more like the old school. So 3D printing pushes us towards this idea that we'll get something unique you know, in one shot from this process. But the old way to design was the slow way, and they would use the same design for, I mean, think about Graflex. Decades went by with hardly any changes in their cameras. Right. But they had perfected tooling for making those standardized parts. So they had, you know, three different focusing rails, three different this, three different that for the different formats. Oh, yeah. And they would just tweak things a little bit, you know, every few years or every decade or so. And and that way of working, you know, does have a lot of power. And but, but even so, like, you know, when they made a three and a quarter by four and a quarter Graflex from the four by five, like they put at least 10 engineers on full time for years, my guess, to figure out how to use those parts in a, in a new way. Right. Like they well, just hire. Sure, but, they, but they also let many decades go by without making any real changes in their designs. And that's where I'm getting going with this is that. If if a certain amount of the parts that you're using can be mass produced any way that's practical in the in sure. you know circumstances you're in, then you only are focusing on the R and D for the small changes from year to year or whatever, and sure. it evens out. You know, so that that you know the first few they made obviously were ridiculously expensive, but eventually they've been making the same thing long enough that they had everything in place, you know, someone cutting the pieces of wood and so forth. Yeah, but so that, I mean, they built a factory and they built tooling, right? Like those gear racks, I'm sure there were, you know, five milling machines in a line doing oh, sure. just yeah. one gear rack over and exactly. over, right? each weighing 5,000 okay, pounds. I'm not trying to like suggest we recreate the past, but what I'm saying is that if a certain amount of the parts that you use could be just say laser cut or sure. produced in some very simple way, um, th- that was economical enough. Uh, then there would be less less of the output would would be so expensive. It, so I guess I agree. I'm, I agree. I'm, I'm uh, in principle, like, yeah. But the things I want to do, or you know, like I want to make very specific interlocking mechanisms that you just can't buy off the shelf. You know, like on the on the very small scale, um, I have gone to designing everything around the M3 hex bolt or M3, you know, uh, right uh, cap exactly cap screw yeah. and and that you know my first camera i i still use those actually but i designed a lot of custom screws i don't do that anymore i use bolts from the hardware store and it's right. higher quality rakes they're metal and you can put a lot of tension on them 
And um, it's also like I don't have to spend 20 minutes printing a bolt. I just, you know, spend 32 cents at Ace Hardware and we're done. Um, yep. Yeah, I think, you know, for certain things, that is really a good idea. But I think where I want to go, there are no real off-the-shelf shutter pieces that I can get from AliExpress, you know? Yeah. Uh, unless unless Dave Walker is... But, is successful with his experiments. We'll talk about that later. Yeah. So now that I you mean, said that, I just got to throw out um, that that's a it suggests a great challenge, which is build a camera with you know just from the hardware store. <laughs> it is a good challenge. I think we should get. <laughs> oh, I want to do it from Dollar after. Tree. Uh, <laughs> that's a challenge. All right. It go has ahead. To, everything has to come from Dollar Tree. I have well, built an eight by ten from Lowe's. Just you know what I could find in their aisles and make with a handsaw and a power drill. Uh, and it's it, it's not that that should be the, the final result, but that you might find enough off the shelf things to, to get to a place where you could make a pretty fun camera that would, right. would only right. have a small amount of uh, bespoke parts in it. Yeah. You know, I'm, one of the things I'm working right now is the Cajon, which is like the big sliding box camera, uh, which I just built as a test bed for, you know, some homemade lenses and uh, that self-developing film back. But uh, it's making me think about making more laser cut things like uh, big laser cut tripod heads and laser cut shutters for large format cameras that are you know pretty limited and simple. But um, I think there's something to one using the laser cutter because it makes much faster, cheaper parts. But but you know Nick's idea of like coming up with I don't know about standardized, but maybe standardized process um, laser cut gears and latches and things in the future yeah i i i mean i think sort of attack on all fronts um the cameras that i have the most fun with personally are are press cameras and so sort of all-purpose boxy things with universal parts on them uh, appeal to me anyway like i already yeah. like that kind of thing and 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 one thing that helps is when you go to bigger formats you know you start abandoning some of your you know little little luxury things like portability and convenience and, and it, it makes it easier to use you know plumbing parts on your camera and get away with it so so that helps too so one thing i i also wanted to mention of note is um kodak is sort of you know kodak and kodak alaris and the kodak business park in rochester and there's you know an interconnected web of businesses and sub businesses and parallel businesses that do all sorts of things Right. And we all know them because they make film, but they have also, you know, in the past made cameras and all sorts of other things. One of the things Kodak is getting into at the business park is developing 3D printing technology, which is really interesting to me. You know, years ago I was in uh, Rochester buying cameras, which what a place to buy old cameras in, in the early 2000s. Um, you know, it was just everybody I met was some sort of engineer. I met the guy who you know, developed T-Max developer. <laughs> he sold me some camera wow, boxes yeah. in an art gallery. I used to use T-Max developer all the time. I love that. Anyway. Yeah, I, I do too. I like T-Max RS, but um, yeah, anyway, I think maybe another um, sort of avenue for this economic model is like, I don't really want a job, right? Like I, I make a lot of money on very few days in the year and uh, spend, uh -huh. you know, whatever time I, I do doing what I want to do. But I think like 
having a job for somebody like uh, Kodak or Stratasys or um, Form Labs doing research and making sort of like, I don't know, like promotional or concept things that demonstrate or push the limits of uh, the, the manufacturing medium, you know, whatever type of 3D printer, whether it's an SLA, an SLS, FDM printer, resin printer, um, you know, I, I could see myself working for Kodak making uh, camera designs that people could 3D print on Kodak printers, right, that, that oh. took advantage of the, the uh, proprietary technology that they're developing. That being said, I, you know, I would like to do, you know, some universal things, but um, I could see that uh, something like this might be, you know, the, the Bronco Pan or other cameras like that, even more complicated cameras, might be useful to a company as sort of like a promotional thing around either 3D printing technology or or around film, right? Like, I was kind of hoping right. that CineStill would be into my cinema anamorphic ratio camera as a good camera to shoot cinema film in. Um, uh -huh. But... But also, you know, more in general, like a, a bigger company like Kodak developing 3D printers, it would be amazing if every Kodak 3D printer you bought already came with the preloaded G-code to print out a few cameras to shoot Kodak film in. Right. And so, like, you know, that's that's me fantasizing about, you know, Kodak agreeing to pay me a wild amount of money and have my dream job to just make whatever cameras I want all day. Uh, I would definitely licensing. move to Rochester, you know, but um, right. yeah, you know, I, I, that was just something like I, I thought of uh, after we were done talking about it, but I think that's maybe um, a good type of model um, where we might see at least a few designers uh, coming up with, with some things that they can share. Well, that right. makes sense because why do you want a 3D printer? Like, I wouldn't want to go near one in, until I saw, oh, it can make that for me. You know, that, that's, I mean, making things that are going to, uh, it's like the reverse of, of selling, you know, cheap razors to sell razor blades. It's kind of going the other yeah. direction. But but it does make a whole lot of sense. I mean, there's a lot of businesses where that's a big thing. Um, outdoor Outdoor equipment, they're all selling their stuff by trying to get, you know, famous climbers to wear it in in front of a camera that that's the sort of same idea it's how do you attract people to your product because you show that you know what it can do what yeah it's I, capable think, of. I think this would be a good a good thing for kodak so if anybody knows uh anybody at kodak who's hiring uh 3d printing application engineers uh please give me a call <laughs> You know, I, I think about um, you, you guys probably aren't as in contact with um, people transitioning from high school to college as I am. Uh, but that generation, that gen the whatever you want to label that generation, the their generation. dream job. Yeah, their dream job is to work in the video game industry, testing the games. So kind of what, kind of what you're saying is, Ethan, your dream job is to be the person who tests all of those printers to see what you can do to. <laughs> yeah, you them, know, so like right? there's there's a couple like uh, Jabil is a big industrial manufacturer. If you buy any sort of product from, you know, Apple to uh, Beats headphones or whatever, Jabil probably had a hand in uh, manufacturing that part uh -huh. you know your thermostat your sink whatever 
Um, they're opening a 3D printing center of excellence here in Albuquerque uh, for metal 3D printing. And I was thinking like um, those guys are really interesting. Formlabs are really interesting because they're doing a lot of optical resin uh, SLS or SLA printing. Um, uh-huh. And, you know, I, I would love to work at one of those places maybe two days a week. Um, pushing the limits of, you know, how fine can you get the tolerances of 3D printed metal gears or uh, how smooth can you get their pivot points for the purposes right. of cameras, but also the purposes of all machines. Or how clear can you um, get a, you know, resin printed lens or how could you build a 3D printed or inexpensive lens polishing machine that would then polish a resin lens. Or I would love to right. have a, uh, you know, uh, resin chemist work for me and an optical engineer to figure out how you might mix different resins to get different indices of refraction that can be 3D printed or cast in 3D printed molds. But yeah, I mean, I think uh, it would be really interesting to push what, what people can use these things for, uh, you know, forward. And I would love to push it forward in camera design, but obviously there are applications, certainly like in metal 3D printing for, you know, building complex mechanical systems in, in a one-shot print with imprinted bearings, that sort of thing, right? Or, oh, or wow. you know, okay. in terms of optics printing things like lenses might be useful in cameras, but it also might be useful in things like fiber optics. Um, a lot of you know, what I'm interested in is using uh, fiber optic resins to, instead of like bond filament to make lenses and prisms and things. Anyway, you know, I, I doubt I will ever get to uh, do any of these. I certainly won't get to do all of them, but I, I think there's sort of room at those bigger companies that have vested interests in pushing sort of manufacturing technologies forward in, in terms of, you know, the technology itself, but like uh, what you can do with it, right? Um, right. I think that uh, this brings up a side issue, which is that that design then becomes even more important because if you're trying to make things that are going to be sort of a you know bait or magnet for uh, for a process, then it, they not only have to be functional or interesting, but they should look really cool. And so, you know, that's and so nobody of, should hire me. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that that that, that becomes a a different flavor, you know. And, and that's what we started this whole thing talking about. We talk we're talking about the client, you know, and how much impact the end user or the end environment for what you're making has on the, on the design. Right. Do you make you know? black cameras or hot pink cameras? I right. disagree with the rest well, of the world. <laughs> and there's some neighbor there's some neighborhoods that want a beautiful sculpture, and there's some neighborhoods that want a humorous sculpture and there's some neighborhoods that want an ugly sculpture. I mean, everybody has their thing, right? And this type of interaction where you're sort of being Leonardo da Vinci for some, some company, they're, they're going to want stuff to look cool. Definitely. Whatever that, whatever that may be, you know, I mean, and cool can be pretty ugly. I, I know the ski industry has is, is been destroyed by the young people's interest in really ugly artwork. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know? There's hardly any skis you can stand to look at these days because of all the, uh, the crummy kind of video gamey artwork that spews, spewed all over them.
Okay, so uh, we've been talking quite a lot about this Afghan box camera idea, and Ethan's been working on these fantastic direct positive color uh, images, and a lot of them really boil down to needing, uh, like, to, the best way to use them could often be with a portable darkroom. So the, the whole problem for me is, you know, I have one or two eight and a half by 11 film holders, and I have yet to build the camera for them, but you can only carry so many things like that around with you. And you got to be point, able to load them. Yeah. And the whole, well, but still it's, you can do that, but then you've got to have, you've got that whole thing of getting it in and out of the holder, putting it in a box. It's a big, it's a big kerfuffle. And then also you're, you have to wait to see the pictures and sort of the whole point of it in a way is, is that you can develop in the field. So coming up with a sort of miniature or portable darkroom situations is really interesting to me. And also it's a way to solve the problem of not having a really big space for a darkroom right now. So I've been thinking about that a lot and had different ideas. And I know we've talked about, um, you know, film holders that double as a developing tank. And that's something we should definitely be trying, but it's going to have its own problems. Like, you know, it'll be wet. You'll have to dry it out to get another piece of paper. And maybe, you know, you can't have it developing while you're taking the picture. So, you know, yeah, just make two of them. That's so, great. but still it does, it's a process we should try and it may be great. It is um, great. Uh, well, no, I mean using the tank uh, film holder. That's what I'm talking about. Mm. That specific detail, but there's an old, sort of an old way to do it, which I've often thought would be the place to start for me, which is just to have either a camera with sleeves where you can reach in, whether you have two boxes, you got a box of fresh film and a box of exposed or fresh paper in a box of exposed paper. And you can just, you know, keep, just keep without bothering with the holder step, just reach into the camera, pull the paper down, stick it in the finished box, pull another piece out of the other box. You know, that that's pretty simple. You don't, doesn't need a lot of uh, expensive parts to figure that out, but it makes a camera have to be kind of big and bulky. And so I've been working on the idea of uh, having a developing bag come off the back of the camera so that you can keep the lens close to the film plane and do the, the changeover behind the film gate. Um, so that's something it, it could even double as your, as your bag, you put your head in so you can see the ground glass. You know, I think that um, could be a really simple, and I just got hold of uh, a bunch of light proof fabric that uh, just a friend of mine was getting rid of. So, um, I think I want to work towards some kind of developing tent arrangement and maybe put it right on the back of a box camera. I like that idea. Um, I was a couple of things that come to mind is I was at uh, my buddy's film set over the summer. I, I went to visit and there was a woman there whose entire job was just to, you know, load the load the canisters and unload the canisters for the magazines mm -hmm. and the on the film camera and she had like a really big pop-up tent right that looked like a silver moon tent type of thing with some armholes perfect like, i feel like um for as much time as you might spend designing and sewing and whatever you might just spend a hundred bucks and like get the perfect tent and glue it to something um, oh, so, so this this is a product that's out there yeah yeah it was a commercial um film loading tent so she could put a like an re magazine in it that's you know, so 20 pounds nice. and it's right. big. How big um, a tray could you get in, do you think? 
I don't know. And I, I bet they make them in different sizes, right? I've done this with like an extra large dark bag and just thrown a cardboard box in it before uh, to, you know, load an eight by 10 sheet pretty easily. Um, but I think they make them in all sizes and like, you know, film camera magazines take a thousand feet of film sometimes and they are big, right? Well, that's, yeah, that sounds like a great product, but I'm still really interested in this idea that you can basically have Put it on the back of the camera. a couple of boxes right on the back of the camera so you can, you know, quickly change and build, maybe build up several shots yeah, I, in the box. I didn't um, think that you would not modify such a thing, right? <laughs> right, 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 right. So, um, no, that sounds like a good starting point. Definitely. The other thing that I was thinking about is the other day, uh, Joe Van Cleve came over to my house and showed me a couple of cameras that he had built years before. And one of them was just a simple five by seven pinhole camera. Um, and it, you th it looks basically like a shoebox, right? It has a lid that comes off on top. Um, and think of it shooting sort of the horizontal way. And then behind the film plane, there was sort of a section where he could put, you know, 50 or 100 sheets of film. And so what he had been doing years ago is like taking a picture, putting the whole box in the dark bag, pulling one sheet of film out, putting it in the shot side of the divider pile and putting another sheet in, taking another picture. But uh, what he was ranting about the other day, which I thought was a really good idea, uh, although I might like to do it a little slicker, was um, adding a like a single sleeve to the back or top of the camera so he could just shoot and swap pictures as he's using it with his hand kind of inside the camera. So it wouldn't be like an Afghan box camera, but it would have a you know, a way to shoot a hundred pictures on paper you know, so, pretty easily. So uh, are you describing that he can put his hand in the side and, and just what shuffle, shuffle the deck, something exactly, like that? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Take the front picture and put it to the back, take right. the, the next one up and put it on the film plane. Yeah. That, that's exactly what I'm have thinking a card about. That says yeah. Stop. <laughs> right. That's exactly what I'm thinking about. Yeah. And the only step that in your color positive, the only step that has to be in the dark is that first uh what is it just the the black and white developer and then and then the stop and the stop so that you could see doing pretty easily and then you can pull the thing out into the light so mm -hmm. you, you know i'm just i just i guess what i want is i want to simplify things so that you have the least stuff to carry around uh and the least and that takes up the least space so, well, that, so that's kind of how i got to the self-developing film holders is like it's one tank. It's not, you know, four mm -hmm. or five or six, depending upon right. the process you're using. You know, there's a little pouring in and out, but it's not that slow. Right. And since you can, so the only thing is you have to be able to, you, you've got it, you could have a, sec, a second tank for subsequent steps or a tray. You, out, you could, but light. even even better is just having two or three of them, right? They're not that big. They're, they're the size of a film holder plus you know, two inches in depth. And so as I see it, you know, uh, I would just have three of them. And yeah. should I have an assistant, I would take the picture and pass it off and take right. the next one. Right. Uh, and then, yeah, but, I mean, you could absolutely pull it out after the stop. In that right. Process. Yeah. Well, so the other way to approach this is to have like a developing cart where you've got all your chemicals and, you know, your box and your sleeves and all that, that's just for developing completely separate from the camera. Like a and, dim sum steamer cart? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Or, or you know, or the caffeinol cart where you can sell coffee and then develop with it. And, you know. I'd rather have Hargau. Thank you very much. 
all right, green tea, whatever, you know. Yeah. Yeah, the the bubble tea, bubble tea development mm. system. Uh, I, I kind of like the uh, coffee cart um, uh, camera, uh, caffeinol, all that type of stuff. You just have to make sure you don't mix them. Right. <laughs> so you could sell like a $40 cup of coffee with a free portrait. Right. Uh-huh. Right. Exactly. <laughs> or uh, a $40 portrait with a free cup of coffee, which <laughs> might go over just a little bit better. This sounds uh, like Heather's bellhop cart camera idea, sort of the yeah. next evolution. Heather, if you're out there, coffee cart camera. Well, <laughs> beat Nick to it. <laughs> So I, as we talked about uh, before, I've been developing a 6x12 camera, um, and this goes back to uh, my first, the first camera I tried to build on a 3D printer, uh, which was a, a, a crappy MakerBot. Um, the, uh, it was just, uh, let me just say that a different way, a MakerBot that was very difficult for me to understand and use. Um, I, I mean, it was a maker uh, bot from the Stone Age of 3D printing, to be fair. It, it was. It was. And it still is. It still is where it sits. And um, and I failed miserably. I failed for a bunch of reasons. One of them was um, the uh, filament that we got with the maker bot was uh, the black was not fully opaque. And, you know, I mean, that was just kind of the the beginning and. And I was doing it in Maya rather than um, uh, a CAD tool. I was doing it in a 3D modeling tool for that's really much more aimed at um, animation and uh, 3D effects. And so, uh, so anyway, uh, it, I I backed off. I learned learned a different 3D modeling tool. I got a different printer. And I have now, uh, and I've learned a whole bunch about putting cameras together. Um, a lot of them by looking at um, uh, Ethan's cameras and how he puts them together. Uh, we've talked a lot about uh, methods of birthing the baby and what direction you have to print things in and how you have to make a model that will work when you print it up from the bed um in a certain direction and um you know what the effects are if you print it in a different direction so i mean those are those are all the little uh technical things but uh so i've come up with a camera that um i i made in uh a first version an alpha model and the alpha model uh i ran through i don't know six or seven rolls of film uh, I uh, considered a successful model, and I'll talk about the fact that I'm actually going to give that away in a raffle to our listener, to one of our listeners. So stay tuned for that information um, and how to enter that raffle. So the alpha is going to be given away. So then I started uh, making a beta version. Um, so I started, you know, I, I shot a bunch of roles in it and I thought about what worked and what didn't work. I looked at what worked and what didn't work cosmetically on it. 
Um, I looked at the fact that I had two cold shoes on the top of the camera and um, with some of the devices that I was putting on there, they didn't quite interfere with the advance and the supply knob, but they did um, come too close. I mean, they were, they were way too close. So I moved that. Um, I added a grip um, and, you know, part of the deal was I'd always kind of planned on having a, um, you know, a cable release channel, um, you know, a channel to put your cable release on. And, um, I, um, didn't plan. I, I planned it to be an integral part of the body, but then I decided it really needed a grip. It needed a, uh, something to hold on to a lot better than what I had. So I added a grip and added the, the cable on, onto that. And I added in the capability of it being either a left or a right grip. And then I decided when I was making the beta version that I, I just would put both grips on. So uh, it's now a, you know, ambidextrous camera, I guess. Um, I changed the film gate to be just a little bit wider than uh, it was so that the film will sit flat. And it, it seems to me, um, I, I still have more testing to do on the beta version, um, but it seems to me that I uh, have a very, uh, a pretty flat film plane um, based on the tension on the film and then a, um, uh, a, a pressure plate that is actually, it's rigid. It's not a flexible pressure plate. Um, so that, uh, that's working pretty well. I eliminated the Ruby window. Um, and, uh, I, there's a reason why I eliminated the Ruby window. I did not eliminate a window. It is now just a, a pass through see-through window. Um, and part of it is the Ruby window comes from the time when we had, you know, when film was not panchromatic, it was orthochromatic. And, um, so that if you had a red window, if that light got exposed, you know, if the film got exposed through that window, it wasn't a big deal. Um, well, we have panchromatic film now, you know, uh, so either it's going to be light tight or it's not. And uh, so I didn't um, I didn't really see where a ruby window it, uh, added to it. I also, you know, this is once again, not maybe. Yeah, this is part about birthing the baby. If I make the files available, I would have to make the Ruby windows available. And that's something for me to ship, and I don't want to ship anything. Um, so I decided to just eliminate that as um, as a part. Uh, but I am going to make a space where if you want to cut your own out of, you know, thin red plastic, you certainly can. Uh, also, one of the deals is the film that I use mostly, which is Ultrafine Extreme, um, uses the um, the same backing paper as Ilford's line of films. And and that is a light gray. Um, and I know why they did it, because I have some of the film from the the before they went to that really light gray printing. And some of the numbers will eventually come through onto that film. So this was their solution. 
And the problem is that you you can't see it through a ruby window without shining a light down there. What's the point of that? You know, so uh, so I I eliminate that. Um, I have shot a 65 millimeter lens on it, and I now have a 135 uh, 135 millimeter um, lens that's on it, and I've shot that, but I have yet to develop any of that. So I'm testing it out, you know, with flexibility. And the way that you um, change lenses is you change the whole nose cone, which is a little bit of a pain um, because, again, you need a hex key. And it is, it's actually a four millimeter, uh, four by 12 millimeter um, uh, hex bolt. But, um, you know, it, it, you can do it in five minutes. Uh, which means that you probably aren't going to do it in the field, but it's something that can be done um, uh, fairly easy. So uh, my whole point is, um, at this point, I am I, I'm going to shoot it some more uh, to see if this is the beta version or the final version, and um, and, and just see if I make any more changes. If I feel like there are any more changes that need to be made. And then I am eventually going to make the files available uh, for download for printing. Um, when that happens, it'll be sometime in the in the spring after I'm sure that uh, after two things. One of them is um, that I have a good video. When I put this beta version together, I made a video, but I think it's going to be a pretty crappy video. So... Um, uh, I haven't done any of the editing on it, but but I have to put one together and make a video on it. And then I'm going to print one for Nick and see if he can make one based on my videos. And um, so, so and then, you mean so mean assemble it. So you're going to send me parts. So yeah, and then, I'm going to send you parts and you're going to assemble it and see. Um, yeah. And he's going to tell me uh, because Nick. Nick is really good at the fine detail. He's going to tell me that I need to be clearer in this video, clearer in that video. And I'm not going to change the videos just based on you. I want you to know that. Uh, <laughs> but he's going to give me a bunch of feedback that I'm going to ignore, which is good, which is fine. And then he'll give me uh, feedback on the camera that needs to be improved. And maybe that'll be a Mark II or it'll be a plus version that'll be available later on. But um, uh, well, I, so I really love I really love it when you guys use use me as a guinea pig. It's uh, I know always, I, always up yeah, for that. Yeah, yeah. I, well, because you're a really good guinea pig, you give good constructive feedback. <laughs> um, so and and you tend not to poop in your in your cell in your little cage. Uh, so you are the best type of feedback ever, right? Yeah, so far uh, so good. <laughs> best type of guinea pig ever. Uh, so anyway, let me let me get to the the giveaway. I'm going to tell you guys about this um, uh, on uh, homemadecamera.com. You're going to go to homemadecamera.com slash giveaway. There will be a form and I'm going to be giving away two different things. It's actually going to be six units, um, one of which is going to be the alpha version of this camera. And the other thing is I'm going to give away five sets of Holga masks, uh, including the slit mask that I've, uh, I've done a bunch of stuff with and the Holga pan mask. And the Holga pan mask is a 24 millimeter by 
56 millimeter, right about, um, uh, mask for your Holga. And um, those are, um, uh, so I'm going to give away a set of those. I'm going to give away five sets of those. So part of the form is a pop-up with where you're going to enter either the Holga mask giveaway or the uh, 612 Alpha giveaway. And I want to be really clear about what you're getting with the Alpha version. You're getting the Alpha version. <laughs> you're not getting a refined version. You're getting a version that, you know, essentially failed, but it will be light tight and it'll make your pictures. So, I mean, we're not, to be really clear on I'm giving away, I mean, the, the okay, other so option, it's So it's a functional right? camera. So it's can, a you, function can, you, camera. can you warn people what the uh, the quirks are with it? Yes, it has no grips. It has no place to put a, um, a uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, a cable release. Um, oh, so all you need to do is, is screw a grip on to the tripod mount, and they make those with cable release yeah, holders. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't care how people solve it. I found a uh, great one at a thrift store for like four or five bucks. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, that works. Um, I will print a nose cone. So um, if you're if you're going for the 612, you have to tell me what lens it is. And we somehow, either you and I or the Internet, something needs to tell us what the flange focal distance is on it. Right. Um, so that I can make that nose cone the right distance um and so that's you know part of the deal and um, will, will that person need to choose between putting a helical on it or using a yes. fixed focal length so it could be set up no, as a hyperfocal camera they have to make uh they have to buy an m65 helical um so because uh, i'm not doing the uh uh the math for the uh, hyperfocal um, version, you know, the hyperfocal thing. So uh, you have so, to buy an M65 helical, which right now is 25 bucks on Amazon. And if so, the, let me just say, if the person yeah. can't, if the person doesn't have any lens, they could just stick a pinhole on the nose cone and use it as could. it is. Yeah, you could. Absolutely. And in which case um, you're going to get a, um, a, a, horribly printed uh, a warped print of an m65 or excuse me of a 65 millimeter um nose cone which is i think 70 millimeters away from the lens it's for a oh, that's, uh, a, that's a that's a nice focal length so that'd be a good that's pinhole. a nice focal length on pinhole. 6 by 12 yeah. absolutely if you want to pinhole this you can um and um and then uh, uh oh wait it's 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 a little bit shorter because it will not have the helical on the end. So it'll be quite a wide, quite a wide. It'll be roughly equivalent to a um, Holga pan, uh, the six by 12 Holga uh, panoramic camera. Nice. Um, so, um, yeah, so you're getting you're getting a, a cast off. You're getting an early version uh, because I don't want to just throw it away. That's just stupid. Why would I throw it away when somebody can can use it and you mm -hmm. and have a, have a lot of fun with it for free? So um, 
So uh, I, you can enter for both. You can uh, just enter once. If you try to game the system, I'll find you out and I'll eliminate you from the entry. So don't uh, you, but you can enter once for the Holga masks and once for the, um, for the 612. Um, and you can use the same email and all that type of thing, but don't enter 15 times with 15 different emails or I'll hate you. Um, so, <laughs> you know, it's just, or you love them for being so interested in your product. Yeah, no, no, I'm going to just hate them, uh, for <laughs> trying to game the system. Um, I love that so, sort of attention. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's fine. You can do that on Ethan's giveaway. Um, but, but anyway, so, um, I'm going to give this away in the last show in March. So you're going to have plenty of time to subscribe to, or to subscribe to enter for enter it but you have to do it through the form and the form uh will be live so it'll be homemadecamera.com slash giveaway homemadecamera.com slash giveaway uh and it'll be drawn in the last episode in march so that'll be the march 21st episode um so yeah uh so that's that's what i've done that's what i'm doing and um, so, uh, yeah, uh, enter, don't enter, what do I care? thoughts on what we wanted to accomplish and work on in 2020 but graham has all sorts of things that he has to accomplish today in 2019 so we're going to push that to the next episode um i'd like to sort of talk about what we've got on our calendars and the kickstarter calendar that is crushing me right now um but right (laughs) now what are we going to do uh just shout outs and some books and things right um Graham and Nick, do you guys have a book you'd like to recommend? I I do. Uh I have a book. I've been um listening to the audiobook version of The Inventor and the Tycoon by oh, Edward super Ball. Glad. And it is it is all about uh Edward Maybridge and if you think I pronounced his name wrong, you're wrong. He <laughs> spelled it like 12 different ways. And for a while, he was known as Helios um, and all sorts of things. I'm about halfway through. It's it's entertaining. You learn a little bit about photography. Like um, now when he took the first pictures that are that are lost, the first pictures of the horse that had its feet all the way up, um, it was very blurry. The the book is about Edward Moybridge or Muggeridge or. Helios, yeah. who Helios. was sort of credited with uh, the invention of moving pictures. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. He did animal locomotion, which was the uh, all of, uh, which was centered around whether or not a horse has all of its feet off the ground at any point in its gait. And he was the one who first proved it um, with fo- photographic evidence. Um, but the very and accidentally first, invented mo- moving pictures in the in the same and, way, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the father of of moving pictures, but um, to a certain extent. But also, he invented a shutter that he did with two planks in front of the lens of his camera. Now, 
I'm not I'm I'm not saying that he's the first one to use a shutter, but he developed a shutter for this purpose. Well, it fires pretty fast, right? I mean, yeah, it had to fire very, very quickly. Um, But the other thing is he was also a murderer. Um, He he, he did a big revenge killing. um, And I'm only partway through that story. Um, So I don't know. I find it very, very entertaining. Um, And and, uh, the tycoon in it is Stanford. Um, Leland Stanford, uh, former governor of California and one of the uh, railroad robber barons of uh, of of the West. And I imagine uh, the f- famous university is named after him. I would guess so. I would I would guess so. Um, but uh, but I'm finding it very, very, very interesting. So um, also uh, shout outs. I have a couple of shout outs. Um, one of them is Brendan Berry. I've already said it. Thanks for coming on last week. I listened back to it. You were very entertaining. Uh, at least I thought so. Uh, yeah, I, thought I really enjoyed that. Interview. Um, and uh, Nick, have you had a chance to listen to it? Nick missed it, by the way. Yeah, no, I, I, it's it's coming up soon. I've been doing kind of okay. work, kinds of work where I can't listen to anything, but um, yeah. it's, it's the head of my list. Yeah, 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 yeah. So. Um, so anyway, uh, if you haven't listened to it, which you probably have, but go back, listen to the Brandon Berry episode. My God, what an entertaining guy. He is somebody who I'm happy that I talked to. Um, so, so that was really good. Yeah. I'm really Uh, bummed that I had to miss that one. Yeah. 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 And I also want to, uh, shout out for, uh, Dave Walker at, um, on Instagram. He's Dave the Walker. And um, he has been tackling the shutter issue um, and uh, he's been doing it with some uh, LCD um, LCD shutters, LCD um, light. Uh, yeah, they're, what do you call them? Light they're, they're light actually light they're viewing screens. They're the kind yeah. of viewing screens that auto welding helmets use. So yeah, 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 yeah. And and they have the the fault that they don't completely go black. And he has solved this in one of the ways that makes a lot of sense, which is to combine it with an old-fashioned shutter that gives you a T setting, so that you can open the manual metal shutter, then right. operate the adjustable speed. LCD shutter and then close the mechanical shutter so that you don't have like light bleed right um, coming right. through because these L- these LCD shutters uh, work quite well but they always let a little bit of light through so you can't just leave it as your only shutter you need something that functions as a quick and precise lens cap and a, a mechanical shutter does that real well and also uh, thanks to uh, Graham and Aid and um, who did they also have on? They had uh, Bellamy and um, M and uh, who's the curmudgeon? Hamish. Hamish. There we go. Uh, yeah. Who's the curmudgeon in that group? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, for for uh, mentioning the whole thing about um, the shutters, the problem, which triggered um dave to 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 go back to what he had he had um uh done before so um what shout outs do you guys have well i was pretty thrilled with uh uh someone who's been posting on our facebook group uh, Lori brooks uh, she just got a 3d printer very recently and is making very nice looking 
uh, components. She's converted an RB67 back to a pano back, and she's made various little doodads. But it's great to see someone just start cranking out new stuff uh, yeah. so quickly. Yeah, yeah. I've been a fan of Lori Brooks. She has a couple of my cameras, and I've been sort of watching her on the internet. Um, and I, I feel like this is one of the very first customers I have seen that are maybe very quickly going to put me out of business. Like she has the skill and technical abilities, the understanding and just like the actual drive to go out and buy a printer and, and figure this out. And so, you know, she was on one hand, a slightly threatening competitor. On the other hand, like uh, I am delighted by all of these things that she's putting out. Um, I think, she is one of those people that's that's going to drive the medium forward. I'm really excited to see what what she makes next. So, so if you're camera dactyl, she represents the rise of the small mammals. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> okay, she's uh, maybe going to crush me, but um, okay. actually, I'd be, I'd be happy to cr be crushed in in such a way. You know, I don't. Uh, right. I think, I think we're great. giving mammals far too much credit. I think the dinosaurs <laughs> were crushed by a meteorite or meteor. Well, and, okay, no, 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 no. I and the mammals were just waiting in the wings. So I think right. when, so, when so the meteor the hits Ethan, then out. she will yeah. rise. Yeah. Okay, that sounds good. Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah. So, so that, that, that sounds good. Uh, any other shout outs? Okay. How do we get a hold of you guys? You guyses. Uh, how do we get a hold of you? I never remember how to get hold of myself. Let's see. Oh uh, my God. Let's see. Uh, well, on Flickr, my name is Nick Lyle. And then there's, yeah, you always can remember that email address, which I, I never get. Homemade camera podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Nick at homemadecamerapodcast.com. Yeah, I got it. All right. That's it. No, sorry, at homemadecamera.com. Sorry, right. it's not homemadecamerapodcast.com. Homemadecamera.com. All right. There we go. Oh That's the email God. address. And oh, uh, I'm going to tattoo it on the inside of your <laughs> eyelids. And I put a few things uh, on Instagram now and again. It's A V Y N I C K. Uh, whatever. That's yeah. And, uh, but you know, most of my actual projects or information end up on Flickr. That's where I like to go, but everybody else is on Facebook. So I do uh, spend some time on the Facebook group uh, because yeah, that's where I've people want to be. Time on lately. Yeah. Uh, Cause I like to actually see the photographs that I'm looking at. And that, uh, that is the homemade camera podcast, Facebook group. Yeah. 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 Ethan. Um, you can find me at cameradactyl.com, Ethan at cameradactyl.com. You can find me on Instagram as cameradactyl, or right now you can find me on Kickstarter if you do a search for the Bronco Pan. Yes. Uh, go back it, um, because for one thing, I'm a backer and I want to see this happen. Hey, yo, let um, me get a dollar. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, uh, what it, what it looks like to me now, we're several weeks uh, away from you guys hearing this, a couple weeks away from you guys hearing this. Um, right now, I think we need just 6,000 more $1 donations. Yeah, so 6,000 6, more backers. Uh, or the rest of you have to pony up a little bit more um, or, or or not. If you don't believe in it, that's fine. We'll see. We'll see. So, so wait, what you're saying? What you're saying is we're half. You're halfway there. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, I think uh, about it's just 48%. Okay, uh, so everybody just double whatever they did before, and you're in. 
Uh, I think what I need to do is find some more outlets. I think that this is a perfect thing for many people to share in a low cost rather than a few people to share in a high cost. I'm going to do everything I can uh, first before I ask people to give more money. You know, I want to find more people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And that's the idea. Um, For one thing, you're spreading it. um, uh, The more people who back it and build it, the more people who will want it afterwards. Yes. Um, so, because uh, more people will see it and they'll be jealous. Yeah, we've yammered enough about this project. Graham, how do people okay. find you? Yes, uh, Graham at homemadecamera.com. Uh, I am freezer of photons, all one word, on ins- on Flickr. On Instagram, I'm Graham Homemade Camera. Um, and you can get uh, uh, you can get to me any one of those ways. And um, we also want to thank Robbie Cribs from Soundtrap Studios. What did Robbie do, Nick? Oh, he composed and created all the music that we use in our podcast, especially yes. for us. Thanks, Thanks Robbie. Robbie.